and welcome to the PathMig Psychiatry for Primary Care podcast. Hi everyone, this is Whitney Landa from the Palo Alto Psychiatry Department. Today we're going to talk about how to assess and choose a stimulant. So first, how to assess a stimulant someone comes to you on. You know, is it the right fit? Is it working? First step is reassessing the diagnosis. So a lot of people will come to you with a diagnosis of ADHD pre-made. I love that because that diagnosis can be quite time intensive to make. So if someone comes to me with a well-established one, I'm thrilled. It saves me a lot of work. I always want to make sure, of course, that I agree with it. So first step, how was it made? If it's a childhood diagnosis by a pediatrician or a family medicine doctor, that's a nice, you know, easy uh, diagnosis to accept. Another is if they've had a full neuropsychological evaluation and get a copy of the report, make sure it was well done. But again, that's a very intensive, time-consuming process. They take great care to do that. So if they were diagnosed with ADHD through that route, that's another slam dunk diagnosis. If it was a previous psychiatrist, I do ask for the notes to see how the diagnosis was made and make sure that they did you know, their due diligence in making the diagnosis. And if they did, again, I'm happy to carry through that diagnosis and treat it. Uh, I still do a drug screen same day. I think that's always a good idea. Uh, just, you know, for peace of mind that there isn't that going on. Doesn't mean they don't have ADHD if it comes up positive, but certainly could explain why you know a stimulant isn't working or their symptoms don't quite match up with what you would expect. Uh, far and away, 90 plus percent of the time, those are negative. Like I said, it still just gives me good peace of mind to order a same day drug screen. And I do tell people, you know, you have to do this within 24 hours. If you don't, I won't send in the prescription. Uh, and just explain to them that that's my policy. It's not about them personally. Okay, they've come to me, it's matched one of those criteria, they went and did their same day drug screen, but now the question is, do I continue their stimulant? Is it working well for them? I just asked them that first question, does it work? Can you focus? Can you get things done? Uh, and if they say yes, I say, is there anything you don't like about it? You know, any reason you would avoid taking it? A lot of people will say, yeah, it works great. I don't like to take it because I don't feel very much on it or I can't have sex on it or I just can't eat on it. So I never take it unless I absolutely have to. And so that probably means it's not the right stimulant and you need to look at other options because ADHD is quite impairing. Relationships, work, driving, it can be hugely impairing to people's lives. So we want them to be able to use their stimulants comfortably and when they need to and not always be suffering really horrible side effects because they chose to use it. Before we jump into the medications, I wanna spend a couple minutes talking about what ADHD is. It's a very badly named illness because people with ADHD can focus. It's not that they can't focus at all, it's that they can't control their focus. They can actually focus better than other people when they're really interested or they find something very important internally. It can't be important to other people. The classic example of this is a kid where their parents and teachers think something's really important, but they don't, so they really can't focus on it. There's also a lot of executive dysfunction, organizing, planning, time management, and also emotion regulation is often impaired in ADHD, so they get their emotions big 
and quick and can be pretty emotionally reactive. That's a core component of the illness for a lot of people. And those are very important things to address. But for this podcast, we're going to focus on focus. And there's really two pathways in the brain that we're looking at. One of them is a norepinephrine responsive pathway, which is attention to signal. So I really want to pay attention to you. You're really important, not you know, the noise that's coming outside the appointment room or, you know, my worries about what's happening at home. I'm really focusing on you, my patient. The patient is the signal, and that's a norepinephrine-responsive pathway. The next is a dopamine-responsive pathway, and that's suppression of distraction. So that's about what's going on at home and in the hallway and purposely not paying attention to that. And those two pathways are important to know and teach the patients about because not only do the medications target focus through those pathways, but we have non-medication strategies that target them as well. And I'll touch on those at the end of the podcast, but those are really important to teach the patients as well, because for adults, medicines at best are about 70% effective, and for kids at best, about 90% effective. So they do need to bring in those other non-medication strategies as well. But for now, we'll turn back to the medications. There are two classes of stimulants, the methylphenidates and the amphetamines. There are a few key differences between them, but at a population level, all stimulants are the same. So if I just pick a person out of a crowd, they're just as likely to do well on one stimulant over another. There's no stimulant that works better or is better tolerated than any other. Now, if they have a first-degree relative doing well on a stimulant, that does make a difference. So if both parents and a sibling are on Vyvanse, that's a slam dunk. They're probably going to do great on Vyvanse. If they have a sibling on Focalin, I'll start with Focalin. But if there's no family history, it's really a blind draw. I usually go with whatever's first on the insurance formulary tends to be Adderall XR, just because, you know, stimulants can be very expensive. We want their insurance to pay for their stimulant. There are some differences between the two classes of stimulants. One key difference between the two classes is that methylphenidates require ascending blood levels throughout the day in order to remain effective, whereas amphetamines don't. This makes a big difference when you're thinking about booster doses or different formulations being more or less effective for people. One really common example is when people come to you and say they're taking Concerta in the morning with a small dose of Ritalin in the evening when it wears off. But they come to you and say, gosh, you know, it works great, but I just can't get out the door in the morning. We know that Concerta takes about 90 minutes to kick in, so they're like, I just can't, or my kid just can't, you know, get up and get dressed and get out the door. It's a huge issue. So you might want to reverse those and have the Ritalin in the morning and then the Concerta. Well, again, you're going to make sure you have ascending doses. So if they're taking, um, I'm going to make this metadate, switch the example just to make the math easier for me. So if they're taking 40 milligrams of metadate, We know that, okay, 12 milligrams of that releases in the morning first thing, and then they get the rest three to four hours later. So in the evening, we're thinking, okay, 
we need to get a dose of Ritalin that's higher than 28 milligrams because we know that was the second release in Metadate. So you might give them a 30 milligram Ritalin dose for the evening. But if you give that to them in the morning, it's going to be way too strong. You're going to want to have something that's less than 12 milligrams. So I would start with 5 milligrams of Ritalin or 7.5 milligrams, even though you know, they were tolerating the dose in the evening just fine. It needs to be lower in the morning. Or you're going to need a massive dose of Metadata or Concerta, which you know, no one's going to tolerate and no one's going to feel comfortable prescribing. The other thing about methylphenidates is typically you do need one dose increase within the first six months of treatment. So even if they've been doing really well on Concerta 36, within about six months, they tell you it just seems like it's not working as well. That's normal and expected. There's nothing that they're doing. Uh, people tend to need one dose increase, usually not a lot more. Then you can just move them up to either 45 or 54 milligrams of Concerta or any other methylphenidate that you're using, Focalin, Metadate, any of them. Again, doesn't seem to happen with the amphetamines. One question I get a lot is, how do I choose between the methylphenidates or the amphetamines when I'm starting them? And I'm really, other than insurance formularies, choosing it based on the person's schedule and the timing of when they need the medicine to be released. For instance, I know that Concerta takes a long time to kick in, but once it's in your system, it lasts 10 hours, whereas Metadate kicks in a little bit more quickly, but it's a lot shorter acting. So I'll pick one of those two based on how quickly they need it to work and when it's okay for it to wear off for them. So a younger kid, I'd choose Metadate. A teen, I'm probably going to start with Concerta. The nice thing about stimulants is you can really tailor them for people and make them work very specific to their schedule and their own individual needs. So some common complaints you might get from people already on a stimulant. One is appetite suppression. It works great. The only thing it does is destroy their appetite and they can't eat. So I will often go to instant release formulations and just have them take it twice a day because unfortunately they have to remember the second dose but they'll be able to eat lunch, which is really helpful. Or, you know, for certain days when it's impractical, I'll have them take an extended release and have a protein shake at lunch. It's always easier to sip on things than eat when you're not hungry. But then the other days have them take instant release to really optimize their eating. Another common thing is people will say that it makes them feel flat or they felt like it worked better at lower doses and now, now it feels like it's worsening their focus. And that is a completely real thing. The circuitry that these medicines are targeting have a sweet spot. So most of us hanging out in the middle, if we take a stimulant, it'll push us over to an overstimulated state and we'll actually have worse focus and task persistence. People with ADHD are under stimulating these circuits and so that pushes them right into that sweet spot in the middle. But if the dose is too high, it pushes them into overstimulated. They'll start focusing worse, feeling worse, feeling flatter or zombie-like on too high of a dose. So if people say that, sometimes just lowering their dose a little bit does the trick. Another common complaint is a crash at the end of the day. The easiest thing to do is add a small booster dose 
to soften how quickly the medicine leaves their bloodstream when it wears off. If they don't tolerate it or that doesn't work well, you can space out their extended release dosing in the morning. So instead of Focalin 25 right off the bat, you give them 20 and then five an hour later just to smooth that out. You can use the same strategies with the amphetamines. Remember that if people have really bad side effects with one stimulant, they may not with another. So it's always worth switching types and trying something else. Typically, if they have a really bad experience with Adderall, I'll try to stick with the methylphenidates and vice versa. People tend to have a family of stimulants, as I like to call them, that they do better on between the two. Then the only way to know which family it is is to try both, but then it becomes pretty clear. So those are all really great things to think about when we're evaluating, is this the right stimulant for this person? Should we change it? But often we're in the situation where they bring in the diagnosis and they say, actually, I never tried a stimulant. Either their parents were against it as a child or they got that neuropsych testing as an adult. So they're bringing it into you completely fresh. Again, we're going to start with something that's on the insurance formulary. A first degree relative has done well on and move from there. If they're teens or adults, I always start with extended release because it's really hard for them to remember that second dose. It's inconvenient. If they get severe appetite suppression, that's when we'll move back to instant release. Really little children have a tendency to have more side effects and the stimulants last much longer for them. They're slow metabolizers. So in little kids, I'll start with instant release and see how they metabolize it. They metabolize it normally, I'll move pretty quickly to the extended release for them. And once they've tried a medicine, where we go from there depends on their response. So if we try Adderall and they say, oh, it's great, but it just doesn't last long enough, uh, and I can't take that second dose for whatever reason, we might try Vyvanse since it's really similar. If they don't tolerate Vyvanse, there's a whole bunch of new 16-hour Adderalls. If they really can't remember the second dose, I don't think insurance would pay for it. But, you know, you can always try that and give them the option. If they say it just didn't work, we can move to a methylphenidate. If Concerta lasts too long, we can move to Metadate because they're both slow-release forms of Ritalin. There aren't a lot of variations between stimulants. If you think about it, we really have two main compounds with little variations. So Focalin is dexmethylphenidate. But our biggest differences between the different stimulants really is their release pattern or their formulation. So think of Quilavant as Concerta in liquid form. Now, of course, because release matters so much with these medicines, I've had patients do horribly on Quilavant that did great on Concerta and vice versa. So we really don't know until we try, but typically formulations of Ritalin have a similar response in the same person with some variation. One big source of variation seems to be from the release pattern. We don't know why that release makes such a big difference, but we do know that for some people, the timing of when it's released, how long it lasts, makes a huge difference clinically, not just in terms of time frame, but actual efficacy. So we might find big differences between, say, Metadate and Concerta, even though they're really both Ritalin and slow-release formats.
And that's something you should really know about the stimulants you're commonly using is how long they take to work, how long an average person should expect them to last, because that's how you're really going to move between them in terms of choosing the right one for people. Common side effects we want to consent people for. The first for me as a psychiatrist is mood changes. It can cause depression and anxiety. I've actually had people develop SI on them. So we want to be really careful with that. Consent people, if your mood gets worse, just stop taking them. And then, you know, trouble sleeping, appetite suppression, the ones we are more familiar with, headache, stomach upset, those can all occur. Another nice thing about stimulants is they're in and out of your system. So if you do have a bad side effect, just don't take it the next day. And then, of course, we're going to monitor heart rate and blood pressure on them because they can raise them. Some of you may be thinking, but I don't want to prescribe stimulants to the majority of people. I'd rather learn about non-stimulant options. And we've got some pretty good ones. Stimulants are the most effective. So for children, it's a 0.9 effect size. For adults, it's 0.7. I personally always start with stimulants unless there's a reason not to, just because they work so much better. But if I have good reason to avoid them, I absolutely will go with the non-stimulants. Stratera is one people know of. Uh, it's a good medicine. It works more like an antidepressant. It is a norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. Any agent you're using that works like an antidepressant you want to get people to their max tolerated dose. So for adults, I'll often give them 25 milligram capsules of Stratera and tell them to work up to 75 or 100 based on tolerability. And once they're at that max dose, give that dose three weeks to work. So they work faster for ADHD than they do for depression or anxiety. If they don't have any benefit after three weeks on those higher doses or for kids, whatever their weight-based dose is, then I'm going to move on because that's not going to be a good agent for them. It really does not take weeks to months to work. It's three weeks at any given dose. Same thing with Wellbutrin. The extended release Excel formulation is the most well studied. So I'll start that at 150, have them move up to 300 as tolerated if they're a teenager, and give that three weeks. If it's not working well, we'll move on. Wellbutrin doesn't seem to work great. It's about a 0.4 effect size. Stratera is about a 0.6. So again, we're just seeing we're dropping in efficacy uh, with these other agents, but they can be very helpful, especially if we combine them with things like guanfacine, which is an alpha agonist, also has a moderate effect size and is works through a different system. So combines really nicely with stimulants, Stratera or Wellbutrin. Kelbri or Veloxazine is our newest non-stimulant FDA-approved agent. It's been used as an antidepressant in Europe for many years. It's a norepinephrine and serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Might be a better choice than Stratera if you're looking for a non-stimulant in someone that has ADHD and anxiety because of that serotonin piece. All the medicines we've talked about are very helpful, but... Any medicine, even the stimulants, which are the most effective, aren't 100% effective. We have to layer in the non-medication strategies to help with focus. And we also need to teach people how to optimize those. And importantly, if you're working with a kid, to their parents. Because parents often have this notion that their kid's just lazy. Or, you know, actually, when it comes to Legos, they can focus for hours. I think there's just they just don't want to focus on their homework. 
and explaining that difference and that when they're interested, they can focus. And when they're bored, they really can't. And so that's why they don't want to initiate that task to begin with because they know that they're not going to be successful. It really helps the parent-child relationship, helps the parent understand and help their child, but even in adults for them to understand that and learn how to make things more interesting, play games with tasks can really help them figuring out how to put some more fun in the boring. The next one that I love is exercise. Aerobic exercise is a fantastic ADHD agent. If you do 30 to 45 minutes of aerobic activity, really get your heart rate up, you will get two to three hours of improved focus. I actually know someone who manages their ADHD exclusively this way. Um, He's a clinician and he takes a break every three hours and does an hour of aerobic exercise. And loves that. That works really well for him. Uh, I certainly could not make my schedule work like that. But it's awesome. Also, exercise has great all-over benefits for us as, as human beings. And so I love recommending it because it has a mood benefit, cardiovascular, overall health and brain benefits. You name it, exercise does it. And other than maybe a pulled muscle, there aren't side effects to exercise. I always love recommending it. The next thing I'm going to really touch on is sleep. People do not take enough care of their sleep. And people with ADHD often have more sleep issues than others. So really being attentive to that. Because if we don't sleep well, we're not going to focus well. We're going to be more distractible. Our executive function goes down. And no amount of stimulant can counterbalance that. So really impressing the importance of sleep to people with ADHD. And there's actually another podcast I'll plug that Dr. Kwiatkowski did about sleep that's excellent. You can listen to that to give your patients some tips around sleep. Another thing that I'll focus on is the use of cannabis because people won't realize that it severely worsens their ADHD symptoms because if they're using it regularly, it's in their system all day long. A lot of people don't realize that. And it takes a really long time to leave their system. So they don't see a difference when they use and when they don't because they don't know that they're essentially always using it. So I'll do a lot of education with them around the impact of cannabis on their symptoms and why I really recommend that they quit. If someone has a long-standing diagnosis of ADHD, I won't stop their medicine if they're using cannabis. But I certainly won't change it or increase it. And we will spend a lot of time talking about that. If I'm not sure whether or not they have ADHD, I will stop their medicine if they're using heavily because it's going to be hard for any medicine to work with that much cannabis. And I also really want them to focus on decreasing that so that we can really see what the symptom burden is. If or if the diagnosis was made while they were using heavily and wasn't previously established. Again, if they had a childhood diagnosis and are using cannabis heavily as an adult, I'm not necessarily going to stop their stimulant. One of the reasons I won't is because, as I said, ADHD can be an intensely impairing illness and make driving unsafe, relationships difficult, people do badly at work, drives a lot of depression and anxiety. So I do take ADHD very seriously and work hard to treat it. It's really hard for people to cut back on substances when they're struggling. 
And when they're really impulsive because their ADHD is untreated, we know that people with untreated ADHD have a much higher rate of substance use than the general population, but people with treated ADHD, actually it's essentially the same level of risk. So if they're using and it's safe for them to continue their stimulant, obviously if they're using a lot of meth or cocaine, that's not true. I might switch them over to Stratera, Wellbutrin, Guamphazine, now Kelbri, but I want to continue to treat their ADHD to make it easier for them to engage in substance use treatment. I hope today's talk was helpful and you feel more comfortable assessing a previous stimulant prescription or starting one yourself. And I hope everyone has a great day.